Hello and welcome to the See You Tomorrow podcast. I'm Katrina Logie, a creative entrepreneur and a catalyst for change. I get inspired by interviewing people who are creating change for tomorrow's world and building the future. And that's exactly what I do on this show. See You Tomorrow is powered by Harbour Space, the university of the future. So today on the See You Tomorrow podcast, we're talking with Anne Hyatt, and she's going to be explaining her course, Secrets of Silicon Valley Success. Uh, Anne is a leadership strategist and consultant, as well as a founder and CEO, Silicon Valley veteran, and has 15 years of experience as the executive business partner for Jeff Bezos, founder and CEO of Amazon, Eric Smith, and also Marissa Meyer. So welcome, Anne. Thank you. And we're also going to be hearing a little bit about your uh, book that's recently been published, Bet On Yourself. Yeah. So uh, looking forward to hearing about that a little bit later. So first of all, you know, what brings you to to Spain? Well, the short version of that story is I married a Spaniard. I met him five years ago while it was the first day of my holiday. And... um, we're kind of remote from each other for a couple of years and then yeah decided to move here amazing and, and start a new life kind of turn everything completely upside down and reinvent myself here in europe yeah. and you were yes you weren't expected expecting to meet a, a, a spanish man were you? <laughs> no it was the last thing on my mind <laughs> amazing amazing how life can change things hmm. and and you were brought up in in silicon valley no, in Seattle, actually. I was raised in Seattle. Well, my father was a fighter pilot in the Air Force, so my first 10 years of life were kind of all over the place. Uh, then we moved to Seattle, which changed the course of my life because that's how I ended up working at Amazon as my first job after university. And then I went to California originally for a PhD and uh, then got recruited by Google and stayed there for 15 years. So that's where I lived before Spain. Okay, nice. And you're one of seven children. I am. I'm the oldest which means I come by my organizational skills and bossiness very naturally. <laughs> I'm also the peacekeeper in the family, which I think are traits that follow me to today. Amazing. So how old is the, the youngest? Well, uh, she, she was a surprise, so she's 20. Um, but my used-to-be youngest brother is 12 years older than her. So the first six of us were planned, and she was a surprise. So we've got a 21-year age gap. Wow. And how, how does that, you know, do, do you sort of... It's fantastic. I really love it. I don't have to go outside of my own family for a friend or a confidant on whatever I might be facing. I've got a built-in best friend in the family. I didn't appreciate it as much when I was a teenager but that there were so many of us, but now it's the best thing ever. And I love that one of us is so much younger because it keeps us all young and fresh and... Uh, she's got kind of that natural youthful energy. Okay. Well. Yeah. Are they are they all doing different things? So they all sort of. Yeah. Two. My two brothers are both lawyers working in Washington D.C. Uh, my sister, who's just younger than me, works at Facebook. We worked together at Google for a long time, almost a decade. Um, sister in Texas, who's an interior designer, specializes in kitchen design, and uh, my other sister, Erin, she owns a salon. So, yeah, all, all over the place. And then my baby sister is studying. She just started a master's program in psychology. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Amazing. And you didn't expect to go into technology? Definitely not. No, that wasn't plans A, B, or C. Uh, I thought I was going to become a professor. I, my undergraduate studies were in international studies, focusing on Europe. 
And um, in the middle of my undergraduate studies, I moved to Europe for the first time. I was in Sweden for two years and loved that experience, loved learning a foreign language and living abroad and experiencing different cultures. And Sweden's such an amazing melting pot. Um, so I had a great experience there. Then I finished my degree. And um, because I graduated from university in 2002, just after the dot-com bust, because Seattle's such a tech-heavy economy, it was destroyed. There was just no job opportunities for me or any of my fellow students graduating that year. Mm -hmm. And it was out of desperation that I applied to Amazon at all. It was not a, a grand plan of mine, but I was working at the European Union Center on campus. Mm -hmm. And the director of my program, his wife worked in recruiting, and that's literally the only reason I applied. And applying changed the course of the rest of my life. Wow, okay, yeah. so it was actually through a contact that you mm -hmm. found this job. Yeah. So, you know, working with, as a, you know, the executive business partner to Jeff Bezos, you know, can you sort of explain a little bit about your experience and, and how, you know, your, your first-hand experience <laughs> of throwing yourself into a situation that you knew nothing about? That is the best summary of my experience there. I spent every day doing things I knew nothing about. I did not know how to do at all, let alone well. But it was an opportunity, it was a unique moment in time where nobody at the company really knew what they were doing because we were inventing the future. E-commerce didn't really exist yet, let alone the gold standard of, of e-commerce that Jeff ended up creating. So it gave me permission as the junior most member of the team to also take some big risks and take on projects that were far senior to my abilities or experiences because I saw it modeled around me, even by the senior most executives. They were doing things they'd never done before and just asking the right questions, experimenting and pivoting really fast. So I just tried to replicate that and follow their example as much as possible. And um, my titles in no way represented the types of things I was working on because it was just one day you would be doing very intern level things like staffing a war room and doing the 3 a.m. meal orders or making sure facilities didn't turn off the lights and the heat on the weekend because we were working all weekend. Or then I would be running, helping run like a a launch of a new category, like the when we opened jewelry, and we were doing a partnership with Paris Hilton at yes. the height of her fame, and she had a jewelry line. So, learning how to do a press event, how to work with celebrity endorsements, how to do a a public um, like press launch, just really being willing to do anything so that I could see those best practices modeled. And then I did not expect, but then I used all those skills once I got to Google and was running those projects on my own. Right, so you weren't afraid to jump in and get your hands dirty. I was afraid, but I had no choice. <laughs> so you learn to not be afraid of making some mistakes and failures because it was an environment where that was not only tolerated, but necessary. Yeah, okay. so you, you learn to ignore the fear after okay. a while. Okay, so what, um, I mean, what was your sort of, you know, your biggest sort of learning experience from that? What would you say were your sort of takeaways? I do things before you're ready because a lot of times we opt out of something. We think that being ready to try something means ready to be perfect, or at least that's my na my nature. I'm a perf perfectionist very much so by nature. That's not a humble brag. It's the kind that really holds you back. And I'm so glad I worked in that environment that just had no room for that behavior. Perfect wasn't even the goal. We just needed to launch and think about our customers and what they needed. And so, yeah, Amazon really taught me to do things before I felt fully ready to be good at it. And that that was just part of getting good at it. 
Okay, yeah. great. And and you then went on after having three years working there mm-hmm. to actually go and study again. I did. <laughs> and then, so tell us a little bit about that. You went yeah. to Berkeley. I did. I went, so when I first interviewed with Jeff, 20 so people had interviewed me first. But when I interviewed with Jeff himself, he only asked me two questions. One was a brain teaser, which was a very long you know, thing. He wanted to see the way my mind works and if I could handle complex problem solving. And um, But the second question was really about why was I interested in working in tech and what was my long-term career plan? So I shared with him that first day that, well, my plan A is to be a professor. Um, and that had always been my plan. He said, I think that sounds amazing. So after three years, I decided to apply to a PhD program because it's all about timing at that level. You need a seat vacated, you need funding to be available, you need a university match with what you want to study. Normally that takes a few years to work out, but um, by sheer luck or timing or I don't know, it happened on my first try. So the first time I applied, I got into my dream program at Berkeley with full funding and um, the opportunity to study exactly what I wanted to study, so off I went. Okay. Yeah. And then, it, and then, how long did that last? Well, after the first year, Google started recruiting. They heard I was in town, and because of the work that I had done with Jeff Bezos, they were interested in having me come in and work on their product team mm-hmm. with Marissa Meyer, who was uh, VP at the time. This is before she became CEO of Yahoo. Okay. And so. Uh, first I said, no, thank you very much. I think it was four months of me just not being tempted at all. And then in a, I think it was around six months, the recruiter was like, well, wouldn't you like to come and tour campus and see what it's like? And that was very smart on his part because I was really curious because um, I everyone's heard the stories of the free food and you can bring your dogs to work and there's like massage rooms and like all, all the crazy stuff that's yeah. campus. And so I went to campus and yeah, realized pretty quickly that that was... The next home for me. I did not expect I would be there for the next twelve years. Wow. Yeah. But do you re- slightly regret having given up your studies in any way? Oh yeah, my dad still asks me about it constantly when I'm going back to get my PhD. But I don't regret it. No. I that year was really valuable. It was also expensive because I left Amazon just as they were becoming profitable. But I learned something in my PhD work that was essential for what I've been doing since then, which was learning to ask the right questions, appreciating curiosity for curiosity's sake, um, leaning into something you don't understand at all, or offering a perspective in front of people far senior to you and not being intimidated by your novice factor. And if I hadn't have gone to my PhD program, I don't think I would have honed those skills in that same way. And that's the the biggest reason why I was successful in the insane environment that was Google. Okay, and you managed to change your job, what, three times Mm -hmm. in in those 12 years? Yeah, I did. Um, The first three years was on the product team working for Marissa Meyer. It was an incredible period of launch. We We had huge launch events about every 40 days, which is insane. Um, our job was just to make cool things. Other teams figured out how to monetize it, but we just anticipated the needs of our users and tried to provide useful information. And that was super fun. Really, really hard, very, very long days, high stakes, uh, but you just learned so much in that environment. It, it was thrilling. But it was also exhausting. You were sprinting a marathon all the time. So after three years, uh, Eric Schmidt, who is still CEO at Google, came to recruit me. He had an opening in his office. He knew I'd worked for Jeff and I'd 
had a really good reputation within Google for getting things done. So he asked if I would join his team. And when the CEO asks you to join their team, you just say yes. I hadn't been looking. I was very happy on that team. I was exhausted, but I was very happy. But I mean, you can't say no to that. And I really liked his working style. I respected him as a leader. He's an incredible visionary. And I knew that he would teach me a lot. So Mm -hmm. I transitioned to his team. And for the next three years, he was still CEO while I was working for him. Right. Then after those three three years, he transitioned to becoming executive chairman. Now, Google had never had a full-time executive chairman before, and Eric had never been one. So we spent the next year inventing what that job description looked like, how he would be evaluated, and um, what success looked like. And so we did a, a listening tour. We really, both of us, reinvented ourselves. He reassigned everyone who had been his direct reports in the company to different projects, and I was the only one remaining, and we just invented it from the ground up. And so that last, uh, yeah, six years that I worked for him at Google was really impactful. Usually, back then, when people became executive chairman, it was kind of semi-retirement. They were stepping back. They'd come to board meetings. Now we see this trend. I think Eric started that trend, what Jeff Bezos is doing now. He stepped down as CEO a couple weeks ago Uh and is now executive chairman, I think, in the very same way. Highly engaged, not really detaching, but able to drive the company a different way. Because when you're a CEO, you're really tethered to those internal strategy meetings. You need to be on campus. You need to be the pulse of the company. But as chairman, you can go out and be an ambassador for the technology technologies, you can be proactively listening to your customers, doing listening tours and being kind of out in the world and watching what you're creating in the wild, which gives you a very different perspective. So definitely. Yeah. So having worked for sort of, you know, Jeff Bezos, uh, Marissa Meyer and Eric Smith, you know, in terms of their leadership styles, how, how do you how, explain a little bit about them and, and how you sort of managed with all three of them? They have very different personalities, but similar styles so their personalities Jeff is very boisterous I mean he's you know he just went to space he's he's got very big dreams he has a booming laugh that is so loud it could knock you out of your chair like if you're not prepared for it you haven't been in a room with him before it's shocking how loud he is um so he's just a boisterous big personality uh Marissa is uh she has a master's degree from Stanford in artificial intelligence before that was even a known word among dinner tables like only in research institutes highly intelligent very people driven her her real gift is assembling the best talent in the world and really cultivating them and creating just highly impactful leaders very very fast and um, Eric is kind of that long-term vision empowering the teams he had a very challenging job because it wasn't his company Larry and Sergey was their company they were the co-founders but he was brought in as a professional CEO to be able to operationalize and systematize what they were trying to build and allow them to just be fully creative and big dreamers and that's a really tricky balance like having three people run a company isn't usually built for efficiency but he did it so masterfully I think he's he's kind of a statesman personality he did that very well okay so you know in terms of how you know you've now sort of created your own uh, leadership uh, consulting business yeah what have you sort of taken from your experience working for those three people and put it put it into your own leadership uh consulting business yeah I left Google three years ago September will be three years and I had started consulting a bit while I was still at Google Uh, Eric Schmidt has a VC firm called Innovation Endeavors 
And so occasionally he would tap me to help out one of his portfolio CEOs with a particular question or challenge, or they just needed to talk something out. I thought that was so fun because by then Google was a really big company and I just loved going back to the origins of those early scrappy days. So I just did it for fun to stay really in tune with what was happening in emerging and what trends were going on in startups. And then, so when I left, I didn't, it was not, I had no idea what I was going to do next. It wasn't my original plan to become a consultant, but those, I, I planned to give myself at least six months of just breathing for the first time in 15 years, having moments to reflect on what I'd learned and what I wanted to carry that forward to. But those same CEOs were like, Hey, while well, you've got some time, I'd love to just have you come in and help us with this project or with this hiring or whatever challenge they were facing. And before I knew it, I had a full consulting company with a waiting list. And then over time, the percentage of clients has moved from American heavy to much more now here in Europe. And that's the part I find really exciting because lessons from Silicon Valley, when I, when I share those with European founders, they look at me like I'm coming to them from the future. Like I'm coming to them <laughs> anticipating what they're about to go through because Europe in general is about five years behind Silicon Valley. Yes. Spain is about 10 years behind. Yes. And so I can kind of anticipate what they're about to experience, how it's going to be adopted, risk tolerance is shifting, investor trends, all the kind of patterns that I've seen over the last 15 years. And that's been really fun is to be able to give the, them those best practices. And it took me a little while to perfect it. What what of those Silicon Valley lessons do and don't apply here in Europe or at different growth scales and different challenges. But now after three years, I feel like I've, I've learned a lot and really kind of honed that in to help give them a big advantage in their growth goals. Okay, great. And you're working with, uh, you're on a non-exec Mm -hmm. role at Armadillo in I am. the UK. That was my first board role. Uh, the chairman of that board, he actually saw me speak at a technology conference called South by Southwest in Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. And they were really, they had just done a management buyout. There's three um, co-investors and they really were looking for, to diversify their board and to reinvigorate the company. It, had, it was 30 years old. It was a little stagnant. They felt like they really wanted to get some kind of I don't know, some new factor to it. And so they um, invited me to join the board to one, diversify because I'm the only woman, but also have the Silicon Valley perspective, this American's perspective. And by then I was moving to Spain. I, I was still kind of splitting my time between headquarters at Google and the London office. And then by then I decided to leave Google. And so I started kind of that adventure with them. Okay. Yeah, they're amazing. Yeah. I learned a lot working with them. Great. Yeah. Are you working with a lot of female leaders? I have, I would really like to work with more. Um, it's much more unofficial. I have one formal consulting, no, I have two, two and a half. I have two and a half consulting clients who are female CEOs, but a lot of it is through um, speaking at conferences, networks, going on their podcasts, things like that. So I try and bring in these voices as much as possible. And my personal mission statement for my consulting company is to discover and empower underrepresented entrepreneurs through actionable education and mentorship. That's my, my mission. And so obviously underrepresented, I kept that broad because that is women or that's somebody maybe who's first generation entrepreneur or somebody who isn't even 
hasn't yet self-identified as an entrepreneur who doesn't see themselves as a risk taker or a revolutionary inventor or something. I want to help discover that and bring that out in them. So that's why um, teaching is something that's really mission aligned for me as well as helping discover this next generation of leaders and help them see themselves that way. Amazing. And when you make decisions for yourself, how do you, how do you make decisions? I mean... Do you, do, you, do you find that's an easy way to make the right decision? It's taken me a very long time and a lot of mistakes, but I do feel like I have a, a compass, which is what I'm trying to teach, is how do you discover your own compass? And for me, I look for three things in an opportunity. One is I look for, am I going to be working with leaders I want to become like? Not just that I like, but that I want to become like, because we become the average of the five people we spend most of our time with. Mm -hmm. And so I'm very selective about the people I spend my time with. So I, I want to be surrounded by people who have expertise I've never been exposed to, who challenge me to learn new things. And that's the second element, is I want to be constantly learning. I want to be on the edge of my comfort zone all the time. Larry Page in the Google IPO letter called that being uncomfortably excited about what you're working on. And I want that. So I want to be working with people I admire and want to become like, I want to be uncomfortably excited about what I'm working on. And I want to be working with people, projects, and companies that are disruptive, that aren't passive in their work, but are really on the forefront of what's next. And when those three things are true, I'm super happy and gladly even accidentally work 18 hour days just because it pulls me rather it's such a different energy exchange when you're aligned with your values is it pulls you into it rather than you having to this heavy push of trying to push your dreams up a hill mm. um but yeah. you do, have you just mentioned those three things are those three things your values those no those things are what i look for in what projects to take on what my next things are my values are really um, curiosity, like insatiable curiosity, constantly stretching my understanding or my expertise, never getting too complacent or comfortable. Um, humility, I want to be... You mentioned a lot that. I love, I'm yeah. a big propo um, promoter of humility because it seems counterintuitive that, but really I saw that modeled by my CEO. These, these celebrity CEOs who look like they know all the answers and, and are so perfect on the outside, they were able to accomplish what they did because they not only tolerated but demanded like dissenting opinions or people poking holes in all their favorite ideas or keeping them really on their toes or helping them see around blind corners so humility is a big value of mine and that's not has nothing to do with not having confidence in yourself or your abilities it's about inviting those voices in that challenge your ideas and make you better um, so that's another big value of mine. And then I want to put good into the world. I, that's a broad definition, but I've had some people want to come in and become consulting clients where I just, what they were trying to create was not value aligned for me. And one of them even offered to double my fee. And I still said no, just because it wasn't aligned for me. I would prefer to give those hours to somebody who really needed my expertise, who is doing something in the community I wanted to be a part of. So you make sure the people you work with are aligned with your values. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. And how many clients would you take on at one time? Ten. I learned the hard way. Ten is my limit, um, because yeah. it's very involved. Um, I do a lot of thought work, strategy briefings, research. I spend a lot of time thinking about them. I also have other projects going on, like the book was a project for the last three years writing it. Now I'm trying to put it out there. I also have a podcast, so I have other things. I find because consulting is very draining. You're give, give, giving the whole yes. time. It's like being a therapist mm, <laughs> very yeah. much. Um, and so you have to have things that fill you back up. 
And yeah. so I found if I do more than 10, I'm too drained to be of value to them. Um, but with 10, it keeps me on my toes. So no so, more than 10. Okay, good. <laughs> and how do you kind of like give the overall balance in terms of, you know, not just working, but, mm-hmm. but giving the overall holistic balance to you? My life balance. Your life balance. Yeah, yeah. I, ha- I definitely did all the wrong things early in my career. I was in no way balanced while I was at Amazon or the beginning of my career at Google. And then I realized that I was going to miss out on some opportunities if I burned out. And so I started protecting, um, while I was at Google, it was one hour a day. And I realized I really needed to get out of my head and into my body. So I started working out for like the first time um, since I graduated from university. And I would protect that hour. I would go for a run or do a class, a spin class or something. Because that was the only way I could get out of my head and just reconnect into my breath. Signed up for my very first half marathon. I'd never even run a 5K. That was stupid. But I just did these challenges so that I could have these other milestones that had nothing to do with my work. Where I could feel proud and strong and um, like I could do hard things. And that really gives you um, a firm foundation for when you're trying to do challenging things in your work. So that was the first version of that. Now, when I have more freedom over my schedule and and the balance of what my day looks like, I've expanded that. I always protect an hour for moving my body, but then I also do at least an hour for enriching my mind, that whether that's listening to podcasts or reading journals and studies, or I'm, <laughs> I'm such a nerd. My assistant laughs at me all the time, but I love Harvard Business Review. I, wow. I will read that like a page turner. I'm <laughs> such a nerd, but I, so I really want to feed my brain and insert new perspectives or just get to know different industries that I know nothing about. Because the other part of my consulting is I don't take any clients who are in the same category. So I have one ed tech, one fintech, one you know food disruptor. So that's very challenging for me because I cannot be an expert in 10 different fields, Yeah. but it allows me to not pretend to be one that I'm there to help them be insightful and reflective. And it can become an advantage that I'm not pretending to have all the answers. I'm just asking the right questions so that they can answer it for themselves. So, um, yeah, so you're, you're sort of letting them see the big picture. Yeah. Basically. But without that balance, without fueling my body and my mind, I wouldn't have as much to give them. So those two hours every morning are non-negotiable. And then in the evenings, it's for my husband. That was really, really hard in the beginning because so many of my clients were based in California. So 6 p.m. here in Spain is 9 a.m. California. So I was having meetings until midnight at least every night when I first moved here. And that just is not sustainable. Like that's We never saw each other because he is a 5 a.m. club guy. He gets up at 5 just naturally. And if I was working till midnight, we didn't overlap. So that wasn't okay. So you had to mm-hmm. stop that yeah. and, and find a way to sort of negotiate time with each other. Exactly. Okay, that's yeah. great. So tell us about the um, course you're teaching at the moment at Harvard Space, The Secrets of Silicon Valley Success, it's- and also some of the the um, guest speakers that you've brought in, which I'm interested to hear about. I am so grateful for the people who said yes to this course. I set out a list of my ideal 15 people, like my pie in the sky, most incredibly inspiring, enriching, different perspectives, cultural backgrounds. I just, and I thought, okay, if I can get even one third of them to say yes, this will really add a lot of content. Every single one of them said yes. I'm just so grateful that they would see this vision of of sharing their wisdom with the next generation of leaders and really devote that time. I was saying to the class yesterday, it terrified me when I started to calculate in my head how much it would have cost based on their billable hour. 
like for each of them to give us an hour. And I stopped doing the math because I was like, I, <laughs> it's too much. But it's been really fun for me to reconnect with people from across my career of different expertise and uh, the wisdom they've been sharing. So it's people from, who've had experience at companies like Snap and Uber, Google, Amazon, uh, Salesforce, um, Virgin Galactic, like just crazy, all the companies you hear about, but you have never, most Europeans don't know anyone who's worked there, don't know what the foundation of those companies look like when it was very, very messy and we were making it up as we went in the early, early stages and success was not an assurity or even felt inevitable or, or possible. And so it's been really fun to have, and it's also, several of the speakers have said to me, it's been a great moment of reflection for them to think about their career and why they made the decisions they've made. And the commonality that we're seeing among the speakers is careers are not linear. It's not this leads to that, leads to this promotion to that. It's very much, I did this and then I kind of left and I tried something crazy mm. and then I did this. And, and it was somebody from 10 years in my past who then thought of me later for another opportunity. And I think that's been really helpful. I mm. wish I had known that at the mm. beginning of my career, that it isn't just these stepping stones. It's very disjointed. And it's also very important to have a, an alumni of a network. Yeah, oh yeah because they will remember you for things that you know you, oh hang on a minute i know someone who can do this that has been that i have not applied for a job since 2002 when i applied to amazon it's been recruited 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 and in all of my guests who have come same like they apply for their first job and then it's just you have a reputation that precedes you people like you they seek you out they want you on the team and you make some seemingly big risks in jumping to maybe an early stage startup from a, a sure thing project or, and um, yeah, it's been really interesting to see the commonalities among these colleagues of mine who I admire the very, very most. There's a, a lot more common denominators than I had even realized when I invited them. Okay, so, yeah. and, and can you talk about these sort of common sort of themes that we're seeing? Yeah, and it's it's been wonderful because it really follows along the way I designed the course. So the first week of the course is about the foundational issues, whether that's for you yourself deciding what you want your career to be and mean and give you, the type of person do you want it to craft you into becoming. The middle course part of the course that we're in right now is really about expanding that. How do you scale? How do you get bigger impact? Get people on your teams, get investment, take it to the next level. And then next week will be much more about the larger scale impact, keeping momentum, and creating a living legacy. A lot of my clients post-pandemic, I started asking them about their legacies, and they kind of panicked a little bit. They're like, I'm not retiring. And I was like, I'm not implying that you are, but the decisions you make every day are your legacy, because mm. none of us know what our last day is. And so thinking about those decisions as a living legacy, just that little bit of a mindset shift mm -hmm. can be really impactful when you think of it that way. So I'm hoping that what they're going to learn is how important, a common theme absolutely among all these guest lectures has been how important knowing their values mm -hmm. is what they do and don't want to experience, what environments they will tolerate. Now, yeah, they've all been in very aggressive environments, heavy growth scales, long days, unpleasant moments for sure, things didn't go well, but they stayed when they knew when those values were being filled and informed when they should leave, when they learned what they were going to learn from that opportunity or that leader, and they sought it out somewhere else that was more aligned. So I think it really comes down to the seemingly simple things of knowing, having a very clear mission statement for yourself and for your company if you're the founder, 
very clear, articulated, thought out, like word by word values. And then having that, those challenges where you're putting together your audacious goals and then reverse engineering those into smaller steps and knowing how do I start today to get one step closer to this seemingly impossible dream I have. And that seems simple, but as we're doing the exercises together, it can be really challenging. It takes a lot of purposeful thought and planning. Those kind of things do not happen uh, reactively. Okay. And are you enjoying teaching? Yeah, I am. I am. It's definitely, um, I end each day fully drained, but in the best way possible. I feel like I've given everything out of my head I can that day, and that's always very satisfying to me. And then at the same time, working in parallel with you. Oh my gosh, that's the hardest part. (laughs) So I'm trying to launch my book. Uh, That is much harder than I anticipated. I thought the writing of it would be the hardest part, not even close. Well, let's talk about it, the bet on yourself. So, you know, it's helping people to build the skills to grow their own careers. Mm -hmm. Just explain a little bit about it and what, you know, why did you decide to write a book? It actually took years of convincing to write this book. It was by popular demand of people in my network. And what really convinced me to do it was, I have been so privileged to work for the people I have, and I feel like I received this elite education at irreplicable moments in time. Those people, those moments in time will never happen again. And I wanna get this education, these best practices out of my head and into as many young entrepreneurs as possible. And that was allowed me to let go the fear of writing or being judged or, or whatever it was that was holding me back in the beginning and really get that if I thought about who I was serving it was a it was an obvious yes um, so the book can be read in two ways one is very narrative so I tell a lot of fun stories about the foundation of the internet and those crazy you know decisions and make or break moments that we went through and what it's like to sit next to Jeff for 18 hours a day Eric and Marissa um, but then most important to me is that it's read as a playbook. So I also have written it, basically a second other book accompanying it, which is more like a workbook of how do you apply the lessons illustrated in each of the chapters into what you're trying to do today. And that is something that is uniquely my message. And that's another reason why I decided to write it is, at first I was like, well, if someone wants to learn Eric Schmidt's best practices, he has three published books, go read his book. But I realized is some people would opt out of that thinking like, well, I will never be the CEO of Google, that doesn't apply to me. But my career, so the story, I I use my story as a case study in the book to be like, I watched these best practices from these huge celebrity CEOs and here's how I translate it into my little job. My took this seemingly small job description and grew it into this and then this and then this. And so that's really meaningful to me. So it was written with three audiences in mind really. First is young students who are just graduating like I did in a, it, just after a crisis. Mine was the dot-com bust. Some are now coming out of university post-pandemic. Probably not your dream scenarios that you're walking into. So how do you take a whatever job you get right now and create opportunities for yourself and work your way towards what resembles your dream job? The second is those who are mid-career who now want to be seen as a leader, want to get that promotion or the big client account or really change the way that people see them. Mm. And then the third category is for that startup founder. Maybe you've pivoted in the pandemic and your side hustle, you just want to go all in because why not? Or your life has been disrupted and you want to take some big risks. What do those patterns look like from my, in my experience and how can you kind of replicate those best practices and hopefully miss a lot of the mistakes that we made. So that's how, 
how I wrote it and the way I hope it's received. Okay, and how is it being received? Well, it's not out there yet. It's in pre-sale at the moment, so uh -huh. it's available everywhere you buy books. It comes out, it's published on October 12th. But for anyone who buys it in pre-sale, I'm offering free chapters, so sneak preview chapters. So if you buy it right now, today you can go to my website, betonyourselfbook.com okay. and download um, several chapters in advance so you get a good, nice taste for it before you get the copy delivered to your doorstep. Okay, wonderful. Yeah. And, and working for yourself now, I mean, compared to sort of working for, you know, other leaders that you've, you know, you worked for, how, do you like working for, you know, being your own leader and, and teaching other leaders to be good, good leaders? Yes. <laughs> it's so hard. It's so hard. I got really good at building someone else's dream. I'm really, really good at reverse engineering someone's moonshot dream into 100 manageable steps. It is tricky to be both a visionary and the implementer. So that's the part I'm, I'm working on right now is how do I... And, I mean, it's funny because this is what I consult on all the time. Often, I literally go to a strategy memo I wrote for a client and read it to myself. <laughs> because, oh, yeah? yeah, it's easier to do for someone else. You're you're bolder. You give such strong advice, and then to yourself, you you can sometimes hesitate. So often, I yeah, I will read my own advice back to myself. So that's the balance I'm I'm figuring out right now. Um, I'm a small team, so you know, going from the infinite resources that was Google of having the world's greatest experts for any possible need I had, down to just me, me yeah. being every single department. Now I have um, one employee, but other, I mean, the two of us do everything, and so that that's been a big learning curve. But that's the part I also that's the hardest part and the best part of it is I'm learning so much. The truth is, I could have worked for another billionaire CEO. I was recru recruited by a couple when they heard I was leaving Google, but I. I chose not to do that because it didn't feel like I would learn anything new. It didn't feel like the right challenge for me. And so starting my own thing, moving to the other side of the world, creating a completely new network of my own and saying my own name every day rather than someone else's um, has been a challenge and a joy. Okay, wonderful. And also, you know, I mean, you know, t telling people about your own story and the secrets of uh, Silicon Valley <laughs> success. I mean, that's sort of you've branded that your sort of your your yourself really for yourself, and people people now recognise you. As, yeah, as having that you know having those secrets. And the funny thing is, is when you hear them, they feel they sound a little obvious. But the secret is that only these highly impactful CEOs are the only ones who leaned in and did the really, really hard work of something that seemed simple. Like for example, a lot of clients come to me um, when they're scaling up. So everything was working great when they were small. Maybe they mm -hmm. raise a, a big VC round, a series A or B. Suddenly they've got all these resources and they're really in the hockey stick stage of growth. They're scaling up really, really fast. Mm -hmm. Everything starts to break. That's usually when they come to me yes. and they start to wonder, am I doing everything wrong? Did I make mistakes? And I'm like, no, no this is what success feels like. You're doing it right. These are all the problems that come with success. Um, but what can those who navigate this really well are those who have very clear compasses of who are we serving? What are we putting into the world? Why are we doing that? More than just the typical business plan stuff of like, 
product market fit and MVP and all that stuff. What really matters is why are you doing it? How are you value aligned? And um, that's what keeps you going and helps you make the really hard decisions because that stage is really hard. That's when you need to replace some really loyal employees because you've got to level up and they can't scale up as fast as the needs of the company. There's agonizing decisions made at that stage. And if you don't have a very firm compass, that stage can be disorienting. So the secrets seem simple, but nobody, very few people lean into the level you need to in order to have the information you need to be successful. Right, okay, so you're teaching them how to lean in. Yeah. And where do you see your consulting business going in the future? I want to serve more people, so I originally chose not to work for another billionaire CEO so that I could help more people. But now I'm limited, I've discovered my limit is 10. But that isn't satisfying to me. So what I'm hoping to do with what I've um, put together here at Harbor Space and my book and other projects I've got working on is I wanna create larger mastermind groups so I can help more people with the same amount of time. I can't have more hours in the day. That's one thing nobody can buy is more yeah. time. And so I want to translate this into some evergreen content where people can do a lot of self-study and then maybe once a month the whole group comes together and I can coach them through where they're getting hung up or what their concerns are. And so um, my growth, is, my next stages are all around growth. How can I scale this to help more people um, with this? the same time resources okay so and part of it is this masterminding mm-hmm. uh, workshops yeah okay and also you know where, where, would, where would you what would you say is next on your bucket list that's such a good question I am a big dreamer I, I usually have such big dreams I think if I was picking an audacious goal like my closest one is to become a, a bestseller because if I want to if I want to be a New York Times or Wall Street Journal bestseller that accomplishes my goal of serving as many people as possible if they don't know the book exists they're not going to benefit from the message so that's my nearest one but larger than that is about scaling like how do I get this whether it's online content through YouTube's or masterminds or maybe something on on TV maybe we do some kind of like modern version of entrepreneurship where we're coaching people through it and inspiring them. Again, going back to the inspiration point, there's so many people who could be entrepreneurs who don't see themselves that way. Yeah. So whatever, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but, but um, I, I think it'll take some form in that of, of really getting a bigger microphone to reach more people. Wonderful. Yeah. And well, it's been great um, having you on the See You Tomorrow podcast. And we look forward to hearing more from you and also reading your book, Bet On Yourself. So uh, thank you, Anne, and uh, yeah, we'll see you again. Thank you, this was really fun. Okay. This was another episode of the See You Tomorrow podcast. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Harbour Space, visit harbour.space and we'll see you tomorrow.